Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the reality dysfunction. Greetings, dysfunctionals. Dr. Ernesto back again with our panel of dysfunctional experts to handle one of the main discussions taking place for Chicanos and Latinos around the rebellions and pushback against police violence directed toward the black community. Over the past few weeks, articles, podcasts, social media posts, and academic panels have all laid out a variety of ideas, thoughts, and accusations around the question, do Mexicans hate black people? There is much to unpack in this conversation, and we don't have any illusions that we can unpack it all, but all of us at The Reality Dysfunction are committed to challenging prejudice and inequity, and we believe that means critiquing our own community first and foremost. Let's get to it. So, do Mexicans hate black people? <laughs> no takers on that one? <laughs> okay. I take that one on a case-by-case -case basis. Okay. All much right. like I do with all of humanity. Yeah. All right. No. I mean, but really, there's a lot there, there's a lot that's been said in the last couple of weeks. A lot of news articles, right, coming from really reputable news sources that have talked about um, and have talked extensively about the supposed or the, the rift or the feeling that people in the Latino community have towards towards people in the black community. It's a real thing, right? So, I mean, as we look at it, you know, do we see that? And we know we know it's there, right? So how do we deal with it, right? How do we, as a community, address that racism within our community or prejudice within our community? If I could just start with a, with a couple of thoughts. Uh, in my own family, uh, there was a lot of racism and racist remarks and use of uh, uh, denigrating terminology, uh, put it that way against Blacks to Native peoples, even though it was uh, basically known in our community that we were Indios, you know, basically Indios. To me, it's a historical reality that racism, and I think it, it continues, the, the more, but the more there is a, a you know, connect uh, Black Americans and uh, Mexican Americans, uh, along with other people, I think I think it, it can be reduced, but it exists. I, I think uh, almost every community has its own sense of um, peculiarity of uh, difference, and as long as there are a system in place, uh, like in the United States, puts such such uh, emphasis on on color. Uh, it, it seeps out into, into you know, the whole society. Uh, so it's this, uh, I guess it's a way of saying that um, uh, everyone is infected with this, with this virus, you know? Um, what's, the, what's the vaccine? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't particularly know, except working more and more with Black organizations. I don't know, man. Like, uh, the little I've talked with you about it, it's like, do Mexicans hate Black people? And it's like, well, the, the answer to that would be kind of like yes and no, you know? 
Well, I can't I can't speak for if Mexicans hate black people, but I can speak from a Puerto Rican perspective. Uh, born and raised in the island, right? Where, you know, we were, yes. I mean, I can't say they hate them, but the what you saw on TV was the, the black people as servants. To this day, there's like TV shows, these gossip TV shows in TV channels that are, you know, referring to the Negrito or with that, you know, uh, monkey face referring to black people, right? And then there's even a case, a, a 11 year old girl in special education in the school system, black, Puerto Rican, and she had, there were even issues that got it to the Department of Justice of the island to deal with uh, bullying that she was receiving and she defended herself. Um, I don't know exactly if she um, hit the other girls or something, but it went to the, to the Department of Justice at the island level. When, you know, bullying occurs every day. So racism and um, the hate, the word hate, I don't know if that's the word I would use, but that uh, um, the Puerto Ricanos in the island, the, uh, the conversations that I see right now are that uh, there isn't pelo bueno and pelo malo, right? And the palo, pelo malo being afro or kinky hair, it is pelo bueno, everything is pelo bueno. And, you know, the education that needs to happen, um, I think is very much embedded in, you know, in society, um, how uh, there is racism throughout history. And in my family, is the way is, you know, I can say kind of the same thing. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know about Mexicanos, but in Puerto Ricanos, I can say that, yes, there's racism. And I don't know if there's hate, but there's a... Desprecio, right? The yeah. Rejection of that, you know? So I would say, is it racism or prejudice? Uh, racism, do we have the power to be racist? Uh, that's a topic that we've heard before. So I have to ask that first question. Having strong connections to Mexico and seeing things from the other side frequently, we have to remember that the U.S. is a exporter and set, has set the tone for a lot of issues, including race relations. Other parts of the world have seen the United States as a example to follow. And I think maybe one of the uh, issues that I see a lot where I clearly see the prejudice is through our, and I'll say quote unquote, stations, TV stations. Oh yeah. However, once you dig deep into it, and I know I've heard people talk about, well, your guys' TV station. But when we really look at it, who owns these TV stations? Are these TV stations truly owned by Mexicans? Is Univision, you know, and I think now they're, they're related and mixed between Univision and Televisa, but who really owns these? It's not Mexicans all the time. It's not Mexicans. I think that a lot, I have to ask that question, is that 
purposely being fed to us and we become a consumer of it. Does prejudice exist? Yes, I also have to admit, I have heard my cousins in Mexico make some prejudiced comments, not towards blacks, towards indigenous cultures. Right. Or that it's used, you know, where it has become a commonality to say things such as, es contra indios, as a way, as a put down. And it has been, you know, it, it has been definitely ingrained into us through, you know, 500 and some years. The first place that these two worlds collided was Mexico. And we still don't, uh, I feel that we still don't have grasped the depth mm -hmm. of that impact. Mm -hmm. Could I jump in, uh, piggyback on that super quick? Like, uh, I, think, I think some of the reason I have problems with the discussion, at least the way it comes out in the media and in the United States, is it's discussed, like, and I've said this before to you, Ernesto, like, real sloppily, real lazy analysis, right, you know? And it's almost like, it's kind of like equivocating uh, the prejudice and the racism uh, that comes in the Latino community to the same as white, you know, maybe I'm just trying to, to split hairs, but it's not the same. It comes from different, a different background, uh, a different history. And there's an element to that racism that never gets discussed, which is, is it's actually a form of self-hate. And that's where it differs big time from what let's talk about, let's say how white racism manifests or a racism the way white people uh, express it. And the only way you kind of understand that self-hate is if you understand the 500 and plus years of colonialism, right? Is there racism in, in the Latino community? Yes, but there's a, there's a lot of complexities and nuances there that come from that, that damage of 500 years. It's like, and then you, you, you get that into the broader Latino community, into the, a lot of the, the Caribeño. And uh, I mean, I know Dominicans get hit big time with that because they're always, they've got a reputation for expressing like a lot of anti-black, like the Haitians are black. We're not black, you know, while, while, while in the United States, that very same Dominican would be considered completely black, you know, and, and that doesn't ever like that. I just think that, that the way it gets discussed, the way Latino racism against black people gets discussed, it's very lazy, it's sloppy, and it doesn't ever put the context in so we can have a real deeper discussion and actually like uh, uh, get someplace, make some changes or, or change some minds, you know? It, it's almost like it's almost like they wanna kinda say like, well, y'all are just as bad as any of the white people, you know? And it's like, I don't know, maybe I'm defensive about that, you know? Yeah. So I, I agree with you, Carlos, thinking about it. I know some of us had been talking about it before and thinking and how race, ethnicity, it's all very complex. Right, and where we come from, it's very different. And the traditions, the history, what we've all experienced all along the Americas, right? It's, you could not explain it in a black, white terms. And I think that we're trying to take what we are and fit into this box of what race, culture, ethnicity is in the US, and it'll never fit. And I think we continue to have these conversations, but as you mentioned, it we're not going to get anywhere because those are the wrong definitions and then we're not talking about it properly. Right? And I think we need to start redefining 
how we talk about that in terms of embracing our own history with slavery, right? And how it's coming into different parts of the Americas, right? Near and, and I agree with you, Alex, hmm. because it seems like we're not talking about it other than in the very broad terms of racism, of, yeah. you know, colorism. And, you know, yeah, there's this whole context that it seems like we're, we're kind of missing, I guess, because each of our backgrounds is very different in the sense of how we grew up. You know, when we were having the conversations about, you know, um, gentrification and, you know, living in a Mexican neighborhood, and I didn't grow up in a Mexican neighborhood, I grew up in an African-American neighborhood. <clears throat> we're all coming from very different places when it comes to, to a lot of this. And it seems like, how do you, I don't know how to get beyond that very broad discussion of this topic. Because it seems like we're almost talking about different things in a lot of these instances. Mm -hmm. I think it goes um, back to, you can go next, Scott. I'm uh, sorry. Probably. I think it goes back <laughs> to what Alex was saying and how she was building off of what Carlos is that we are trapped in a uh, sort of like a rhetorical loop, right? And we don't know how to get out of this. And I think that that's part of this conversation when we think about how do we challenge our community in terms of, of this particular topic. I think that part of the challenge is thinking about um, how it is that we talk about it so that it, it actually makes sense and that we're not just replicating, you know, the uh, official uh, paradigm of race, race, for all those you who are listening, I'm making quote marks right now, uh, <laughs> in, in the United States. Scott. Yeah. Um, I was just going to mention like, like certain, uh, I did a lot of research for like on my California ancestors and um, this notion of Rata Cos uh, Cosmica and uh, th that we were the most mixed um, uh, people of most mixed Mexican state, like really erased a lot of uh, blocks what people see because you have like Anglo historians and sometimes even black historians trying to say, look, they had, uh, they were mixed people. It was, uh, it was like, um, what do you call it? A, um, such a great uh, utopia. I was like, a utopia. <laughs> they they invaded and took and uh, tortured my indigenous ancestors, right? And so it's like they they would take people like Pio Pico. They bring them up all the time. Like, look, a black man was the governor and the richest man in California. And yes, he was, but it's not like he would necessarily consider himself black, it, would it? And then then we have many books still saying like um, trying to make it seem as if he would be would have been something that said behind his back, think there were things, or like in LA, there, there was a, um, the Americans called it the N-word alley, but we, but we called it, you know, something else. And there's like streets named like that. So there's a lot of racism throughout and it gets erased in a, a lot of times when I, um, you know, there's things in my own family, like you guys were saying, like good hair, bad hair. And then like everyone pretty much wanted to cross themselves when we saw our 23 and me, how much black we are. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, uh, it, but there's plus there's some erasure I think like especially like from people who like who try to tell our stories aren't necessarily part of us it's like well even some of like there is are some books that they want to say oh we're all mixed it's all we're all just Mexican and then like talk about being white and, and uh, being Spanish and, and Indian you know our our concept of race is different because you could be very mixed and still hold position in society for for many centuries. right oh yeah and Americans have the one drop rule right and so it's we're stuck in this between we're, we're like as americans we're stuck between the, these two conflicting colonial attitudes 
but there's also we're in a system that doesn't put i mean there's sort of competing uh or contradictory uh you know undercurrents within the system right we don't fall necessarily within the one drop rule and you also and you have this you have this undercurrent where the state wants to label us as as white right that's why you have this question of race and ethnicity and if you get arrested and you're, you're Mexican, the more like, most likely going to mark you as white, right? So there's something in the system that wants to use uh, uh, Mexicans or Latinos as a force in sort of the suppression of the black underclass, I think, or the black population period. Uh, so I, I, you know, I think that's something that needs to come into understanding, like the, the Republican Party elements of it are slobbering to be able to claim Mexicans, Latinos as part of their base. Right. Obviously, there's the, pop, the, the the base right now that's in control hates Mexicans and would like to have some pages, but that's not the whole of it, right? If you look at their a lot of the intellectual conversations within the Republican Party, they want to be able to organize us and claim us. So I think you know there's that's that's a contradiction, sort of what's and that's something that I think we need to you know be very. We see this like on the like all the genealogy and what Weber's types um, I'm connected to, it's like a lot, there are a lot of people who are anti-indigenous and then they'll be, they're like, oh, I'm pure Spanish. And then they're, they're having a heart attack when they find out that, you know, they're, um, you know, half Indian and, and part black. <laughs> you know? it's, yeah. Well, that's it's, self-hate within the community. Yeah. It's yeah. self-hate like you guys are talking about, but it's also something the U S has exploited in that, like um, you can't like up until like, if you're indigenous, you couldn't vote. To 1977 something like that you couldn't own land uh, they hunted us in california you know and so you so a lot of californian and nations they tried like and especially in southern california la they became mexican overnight even though you know they spoke spanish um but they didn't consider themselves mexican they they're because if you're mexican confuse the system i mean I, I think it goes also back to that large that larger question of um you know this country because the way it likes things in nice little compartments and, you know, the one drop rule and black is black, white is white. And, you know, all of that, I, I just, it's another example of how they don't, they don't have the, the, the sensibilities. They don't have the, they don't have the playbook to understand the complexities of where we're coming from. I remember I, I had a, a compañera Puerto Rican and she was like how she would get, and she was very uh, with strong, uh, you know, African, Afro Latino and features and, she would get asked whether she was black or, or Puerto Rican and she would be like, yes, you know, like, yeah, because there couldn't be a concept of like, you had to be one or the other. Right. And larger, when I say Latino, I mean, all of Latin America, we don't fit in those nice little boxes. It's real hard to make them fit in those boxes. And, and that concept just doesn't, the United States just doesn't, doesn't get it doesn't want to get it is quite frankly scared of getting it and if you look at it that's what they've tried to avoid from their very existence is ever having that you know they don't want to be all mixed up and this and that and things to get complicated their whole effort has been to avoid that so i, I think that's part of the problem i also think and i'm just going to throw this out there and then i'll be quiet uh is i think sometimes this whole emphasis on how anti-black latinos are my cynical side, but I, I see it, also thinks that some of that is a way to kind of shush us, keep us quiet, keep us in a, in a hierarchy, kind of, like let's not have difficult conversations across community lines that we all have to have, a, a kind of a, a way of like maintaining the binary, 
of black and white, you know? So we don't get in that discussion. It's a kind of way of saying, you know, you don't have any right to talk about this or challenge anything uh, because you hate black people so much. So be quiet and be ashamed. I don't know. I'd like to know what other people think about that. I think that those are the kind of ideas that have to be thought through, right? Because that is that is beginning to think about how it is that we disrupt the political binary. And I'm, I'm not even going to use the words white and black. I'm just going to say, how do we disrupt the political hegemony that is happening or that has taken place? And it goes back to what you were saying a second ago. They didn't just do anything to avoid it they committed genocide on a mass scale to avoid it, right? I mean, that's, now that's commitment. I mean, when you're, when you're going to just wipe out a whole race of people, that's commitment, right? So, you know, and we see that all throughout the Americas. And even though the Spanish had a different system, right, to insinuate or intimate in any way, shape, or form that their actions weren't genocidal to the mm-hmm. indigenous people of, you know, Mexico and Central America and South America, I mean, that, that just wouldn't be true, right? I mean, it's important to remember that uh, I mean, the Spanish were in the Americas for 100 years before the English ever got here. I mean, everything that the English did, they did because they read what the Spanish had done, right? And they were like, okay, this is where they messed up. This is what we're going to do. Those, those points are, are they're very important. Well, I think uh, the English, I mean, um, I often go by like what happened in the United States, right? For me, I'm not defending the colonial system at all, like any colonial system, but the Spanish had did not have the power in the far frontier of Texas, New Mexico, and California as the English did. Like they they came and they came to kill everyone as as much as they could. The Spain and Mexico did not put the manpower in to be able to do that, and that's that was the critique. That's why we got invaded by the U.S. because we didn't have uh, defenses, and you know that's why they talked about Indian Wars and not the Mexican-American War. Yeah, and I think it's also important to remember that Spain, the, the Spanish caste system, had over 100 classifications. Yeah. <laughs> and that we have been fed that and exposed to that. How does that impact you 500 years later? We're living proof of it. As uh, Brother Theo was saying, you know, the classification is also an issue. And I see that at school. You know, I'm looking at kids' uh, bio stats and everything. And you'll have the most beautiful Benito Juarez looking brother, but in his classification, white. White. And I'll go through every year in all my classes, and I'll go through and I'll see, you know, what's everybody? I have to know where you coming from, what's your background. So I'll go through at the beginning of the year. And, you know, if I had 10, 10 Mexicano estudiantes, which, you know, multiply that by 10, but if I have to have 10, None of them are classified as white. But I am finding more, more families identifying as native, you know? And yeah. we see that as, uh, as the census. We've talked about this before. Yeah. And I think that's one of the ways to combat that is through our census classification. What does that say when we are identifying more as indigenous, and Mexicans being the fourth largest uh, native identification nowadays. I think we are addressing the issue. 
Maybe we could also teach about uh, like black Mexicans. There's there's been many that, that have been accomplished things throughout history that like you almost never hear anything about. Mm -hmm. Or like you know, in the U.S. likes to portray like in uh, what's the Cuba the Cuban um, there was the black Cuban general like they depict them as white. <laughs> Sometimes you don't even know that somebody's black or not. And I think it's just time that we redefine and we being as as indigenous, Mexican, Latino, whatever we want to call ourselves, like we start to define that narrative and take control of it. And we need, and I think this is, this podcast is a part of that is for us to be able to control that narrative. And, and I've told the story before on, on the show that my kids don't identify with being Latino. They, they don't really understand what that means right? But they do know what being Colombian is, right? Yeah. So my kids are half Colombian and half Samoan. They know what that means. They understand the culture, some of the traditions history of what that means, but not what Latin Yeah, that reminds me of, uh, of when President Obama was elected. I seen some, uh, some people posting, uh, only in America, only in the United States. But how many of us knew Vicente Guerrero, you know, years before that? I don't know. Again, it's about controlling the narrative. Maybe that's some our fault in itself for not promoting it. You know, I don't know how to control the narrative when it comes to the U.S. Census, right? Um, because uh, going to what Francisco was saying about, you know, Benito Juarez looking kid marking as white, right? It just made me think of Puerto Rico. And I don't know the specific numbers, but because we fill out the U.S. Census like any other state or jurisdiction, the majority of the people of Puerto Rico end up identifying as white. When the majority of the people, while there is a lot of white skin and a lot of white looking Puerto Ricanos, the majority is black or mixed with something, you know? So the thing is, is like, how do we change that U.S. Census classification to control the narrative, right? On how people can identify. We can't control that to a degree, but there's many other spaces in where we can, you know? Yeah. I'm thinking about how you're talking and how we've been talking about the classifications that appear on, you know, you go to the doctor, there's little things that you have to fill out as how you identify. And one of the classifications that I always remember that I always get confused on is Hispanic, Latino, not black, right? And so you can't, they, you're being told that you can't identify as both. And I'm gonna find one, I have to find. And, and so it's really interesting how it, it's the inequity by design, right? This is not just done just because that's how they thought about it. Yeah, yeah that's a but great I'm gonna, question. Yeah, and it's like they, they want you to identify as a particular, they it's want getting, you to make sure that you're talking about right. And, and they are, they're making us white and the default is white. So I know in our school mm -hmm. system yeah. that if you are, if you check off that here Hispanic or Latino, and you do not put other, the default for race is white. Yep. Getting more like the CASTA system. <laughs> the, right? the list you is getting agree. longer, more involved, you know. I was talking with Teo earlier today before we came on this call, and 
and one of the points that he made is, and this is the same point that I think everybody here is making right now, is that this is a very complex, right? This isn't cut and dried situation. I mean, there is history, you know, centuries of history that go into producing who we are, how we see ourselves, and regardless of how we might see other people, there's a whole history too. I mean, there are things that are very important to remember. I was shocked when I learned that more uh, African slaves were taken to Mexico and um, South America than they ever were brought to the United States. But once you know that, then you can really, you really begin to see certain things, right? I was shocked. I was listening to uh, Daniel Osuna speaking one time, and he started talking about the origin of the cumbia and his assertion, and I've, I've read other things that are similar to this, is that the cumbia itself evolved from the dance of African slaves, like, because they were shackled. And so they could only step a certain amount, right? You know, you're on that two beat. And, you know, that's where the, the movement for the, for the cumbia comes out of. And I mean, when you start to think about things like that, what you begin to realize, I think, is that there is a really long history of involvement that people from all over the world really have with each other, right? So, you know, these ideas that people are siloed or and particularly in those colonial areas, eras where people are just being brought together and just being like mashed together in these different systems, you know, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. Well, I think it's divide and conquer too, right? Divide and conquer. We know it, it works. And I think that's part of the, maybe part of the momentum behind some of these articles that we are addressing. Not that it doesn't exist, not to negate it. That's definitely the inappropriate approach. But divide and conquer is definitely one of the issues that we faced before. And maybe why there is some animosities between our communities because of having to compete and struggle for limited resources. I was just going to say, this is Reiner, I, uh, on that, that divide and conquer thing, you know, prior to this latest flare up, if, you know, you look at the DACA issues and things like that, you know, on that end, Latinos and other folks from the Americas were portrayed as like the interloper, right? You know, as the immigrant, whether or not we've been here for thousands of years, you know, and then other communities, whether they were white or black or what have you, would consider us as, you know, as immigrants, as, as illegal immigrants, as wetbacks, you know, so, so, you know, but that's, that's something that probably was more instigated again by how the media portrayed the community and it cre creating another division, you know, that is artificial. Yeah, that's, I was going to say the same thing. They want to portray us as, as the outsider, the foreigner, when, you know, when, you know, we, most of the places I live in have, you know, names, <laughs> uh, Spanish names and whatnot. I mean, I think I, that that's why there's, um, there's a need and a reason why a lot of ethnic studies programs in universities and libraries and Latino Latinx uh, programs are engaging in discussing beyond just being Latinx, but going into those specific differences that exist within that, like being Afro-Latino or being Afro-Mexicano or being, you know, Afro-Caribeño and the different ways in which there's a history behind that, there's 
consequences and things that we 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 still use to this day not just cumbia taught but the majority of the dances that we do across our cultures merengue joropo cumbia you know you name it bomba plena they all come from the african slaves in our regions trying to express many different things that they couldn't express verbally because they would be punished. So, and to this day, you know, yeah, we kind of know that, but there isn't really a conversation about the importance of, you know, what section of the Latinx community actually did that, what community within the Latinx community did that, yeah. which was specifically the black slaves. So, yeah. Yeah. Once we understand that, I think that we'll be able you know, to have these conversations and with actual changes into what the conversation looks like. Yeah, but I think we need to, we can't leave without making clear that we're not strangers to the violence of the state, right? I mean, the, like police are an occupying force in our communities and our neighborhoods the same as in black neighborhoods. Right. And so that's something, I mean, that's a clear point of, of common commonality that allows for, I think also joint struggle. Yeah. Have you all heard of uh, Boca Floja, rapper out of Mexico City? Uh, the guy's great, man. Yeah. Have you heard his song where he says, Cuando sepas que la madre de Zapata era oh. una negra, sabrás que hacer. How many of us knew that? that that's something I was also kind of mentioned is like, you know, I think it's kind of meant to kind of shame us, uh, you know, this discussion. And something that kind of leads me, convinces me more of that is there's never a discussion, an equal discussion about the depths of solidarity because it hasn't been all bad, you know? There's been a lot of like things that would, when I started learning that and seeing that, and not just in the United States, but also in Latin America, like when I first read up on the story of Yanga, right, in Veracruz, I'm like, man, that is some intense stuff, man, you know? And like, can you imagine how beautiful that army must have looked? I mean, it was nothing but an army made up of, of, of freed, you know, escaped black slaves and mestizos and, and indigenous people. And so we never talk about those kinds of things, right? Or we never talk about, you know, in the Plan de San Diego, how they were calling for an independent African, freed African state, right? You know, there, and there's tons and tons of examples of that kind of stuff. Vicente Guerrero, I mean, we can go on and on. But it's interesting to me how that discussion is never brought out, right? Nobody ever says, yeah, there's... There's this, but I mean, look at how much, look at how also there's been been intersections of solidarity and, and, and all of that, taking up causes. And I mean, especially like in 1910, 1918, up to about the 1930s, but nobody wants to talk about, about that. And I, I don't think that's a very popular, I don't think media would take that because that's not very popular because I mean, that scares the hell out of them, right? You know, black and brown unity, real black and brown unity, you know, Oh man! So like they were more interested in showing people breaking windows and different businesses yeah. than solidarity of people calmly marching down the streets, right? Think about when that was happening on the TV. They're not interested in showing anything like that. Either one of those things is dangerous, right? People marching calmly down the street together or running down the street breaking windows. I would argue that on some level, that that they're almost exactly the same thing in terms of their opposition to colonialism or the colonial rule here in the Americas. I think that 
the video that I showed that I sent you all earlier about the the Fox News uh, reporter who tried to get that black guy to agree with her that illegal aliens, like she was calling them, should be deported or whatever. I mean, homie schooled her. He schooled her all day, you know, and he was just like, look, it's your ancestors. Your ancestors were the illegal aliens. And I mean, the way that he brings it down to the present is he's like, if black people and Latinos, I think that's what he, that's the term he used, or Mexicans, if they came together, he said Mexicans, in the state of Texas, he said, we would run the state of Texas. And he's right. So one of the things that I've really seen over the past couple of weeks is just this, um, I don't know, it's like this sort of inner, you know, immediate level whining that's coming from like social media that is particularly coming from like a lot of uh, uh, Chicano websites or social media sites where they're just like, I don't understand, you know, why everybody's paying attention to black people. This happens to Mexicans too. And we have these same problems. And, you know, and of course all, all of that is absolutely true, but you know, on some level, I, I can't help but feel that there's some intense jealousy that's happening about this particular moment where it's very clear that the black community over the last 10 years has worked very hard and organized, right? To get to this moment of rebellion. And I don't think that we've put in the same kind of work as a community. I just don't, I I just don't think that we have, I feel some real, like I said, jealousy that's happening. But I think that the remedy for that is to think about how it is that we can organize in our communities around, you know, these types of issues. Like you take, for instance, these kids that are languishing in these cages, man. You know, I have four children of my own. I mean, sometimes I have to force myself not to think about it because it's so crushing that those could literally be my kids or they could be my grandchildren, right? I mean, it just, it's devastating. It, it hurts my heart but they're still there. And I think that, how do we stop that? Maybe one of the things that we do is we pick one of those detention centers, probably somewhere in Texas, and we just call for a siege of that detention center. And everybody goes to that detention center, not to riot, not to like take it over, because I can tell you this right now, if 100,000 people showed up at that detention center, we wouldn't need to riot. And if everybody just sat there and said, we're not leaving, we're not going to leave. And as a matter of fact, we hope everybody else comes and joins us, right? They're going to have to shut it down. But until we experience that kind of victory, right? Until we exceed that sort of that level of yeah. uprising, like it, that happened in Ferguson, that, it, but it happens in our community, we will never, we, we will never achieve what it is that we want to achieve. That's all I got to say. I, man, I, I agree with you, uh, like, completely on that. And so the next thing I'm going to ask is the question on why, set some thoughts on why you think that's the case. Which part? The part about, like, uh, why we haven't organized as much. Yeah. I think this whole conversation is, is the reason, is the reason why. I think the fact that, that we get to be white I think that really means something to a lot of people who are in our community. You know, mm-hmm. I think that they uh, see it as a way up and out, you know, 
Yeah, I think it's a lot of that. I think it's about status, and I think it's about believing in the American dream, you know? Um, I would agree with you on that. I think it's know? about fitting in, trying, we have at times tried to fit into that box that we were being put into. And I clearly remember in 2006, when we had the protest going on for the Arizona laws, there were a lot of Mexican flags out in LA. I remember there was, there must've been almost a million people there, even though the, the media downplayed it, there must've been almost about a million people. And one of the criticism that we received were, you know, why are you waving those Mexican flags, those uh, uh, Ecuadorian flags, you know, the Central American flags when you guys are, you're here, you're trying, you want to be part of us. And what happened at the next few rallies? The flags were gone. And I think it's part of us trying to fit into that box and feeling that maybe that's the way, that's the way that, uh, that we would be there. And at the same time, I, I also think that there is some apprehension from some of us in our communities because if you've been deported, if you've ever received a letter saying that you will be deported, if you've had family members who have been locked up because of those issues, it does give you some uneasiness and you do fear. I was just heard last night on KPFK here, I was listening to it and they, were, they had some people talking, some young kids in LA talking about the march that they did on Sunday, right? Exactly on this topic. And one of the girls talking, she said it. She said, you know, I, I was a bit scared because her mother's undocumented, her sister's undocumented, or docu documented. Her dad was no longer there with him because he had been deported. There was some uh, apprehension on her part, clearly, because she felt, will my involvement lead to somebody else in my family facing these consequences? I, I think that's very fair, but at the same time, like our, our undocumented population is so, is very small, actually. Most of us have papers, and it's just like, I think we want to fit in. We, our, our community has been terrorized as well. We've been like put up on, like uh, in LA, they just grabbed Mexicans at random and threw them on a train and, deport, and deported them, right? And then again, this history of racism just led the black community have suffered when they came into our communities and, and it killed us and like the Texas Rangers and whatnot. It's, I would just say it's our own, our own fear that stops us a lot of times, you know? And we're fear, fear to lose what we have and what we've worked for. I would say that I agree with both of you. I think that there's enough of us that these people who are, are undocumented, they should not be having to put their, their lives on the line the way that they are. It's just that simple. But I think it, it goes back, you know, how do we get organized and what are we organizing for? I think it's really one of the big questions, right? You know, are we organizing just to stop immigration? Are we organizing just to stop ICE? Are we organizing to build power? And if we're organizing to build power, then, you know, what are we building power for? And I think that that's the part that gets, um, that gets a lot of people uneasy because I think that they unconsciously know the answer to that question but it's not one that they want to, that they want to deal with. And so right. I think that the more that we can push, um, the more that we push ourselves to work with our comrades in the black community. And I think the more that we push ourselves to work with our comrades in the white community, the more that we begin to build 
an analysis of power and a pathway to the level of confrontation that it takes to actually transform society. Yeah, and I agree with you. And, and from that march on Sunday, there were some very powerful images where you did have some young African-American brothers draped in Mexican flags. Mm-hmm. And also in Chicago, I did notice this also in Chicago, after the riots there in Chicago, there was one particular African-American who was going around in a horse waving a Mexican flag because he understood what could come of it if there was not that bridge, if somebody didn't bridge that divide that happened. Because you did have some, I don't know if it was some of the gangs or just some of the youth who were out there on 26th Street Little Village protecting businesses, you know, the neighborhood. And there was some tension right off the back. But, you know, again, somebody stepped up to it and just walked, went around waving a Mexican flag, making sure to show solidarity. And I think bottom line, that's where we're at in this point. And I think what our conversation is about, you know, we clearly need to show that solidarity and build that unification with anybody, with anybody who's willing to. Uh, I, I think this got to happen before, like, we're the majority, because, like, uh, we don't want to be, like, have these same problems in the same manner. You know, we don't want to replicate, like, bad things towards the Black community that the, that the Anglo majority has been doing, or yeah. to ourselves, because we start, you know, our own self-hate. If I can ask one last question. So maybe, to me, the way to ask this, how many of us have Black in our family? Let's put it there. Just us on this panel. How many of us have black in our family? Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. I'm the father to, to one, you know? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I'm the father to three. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the son of one. I mean, maybe a stepson, is. but I yeah. mean, he but raised still, me my whole life, man. Yeah. Agreed. 100%. Yeah. 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 I think that that's... I think that's real. And I think that that's a big part of it. And I think that that's also the piece that those of us who do have those ties, I mean, we, we need to remember that. And we need, we need to also, I think, remember that when we're fighting against these ideas, that we're not just fighting against some like amorphous ideology of prejudice or, you know, racism or whatever. I mean, we're literally fighting for the people in our families, right? For our own, for our own children. And I think that that that's important. That's all we have for now. From all of us here at The Reality Dysfunction, keep pushing, keep fighting, keep organizing. Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is The Reality Dysfunction.